Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Af Malhotra on Straight Talk with Af. Now, of course, I have promised you that I'm never going to disappoint you, and today is yet another special day where I'm going to live up to my promise. I have the wonderful Dr. Shashi Tharoor on the show with me. This is momentous because uh, we have a bit of a history that I made him aware of just a moment ago. Uh, when I was a little boy, I certainly don't want to make him feel too old, I did go over to his place in Geneva, and he had his little boys who were a little bit younger than me, and um, we had a lot of fun and we went a couple of times. And, and then, of course, uh, the celebrity status that Shashi's got in terms of an author, 24 books that he's written. I believe I was doing some research. He's been writing since 1981. Um, his entry into Indian politics, winning elections three times and um, everything else that you know about him. So I, all I want to say is if you're of uh, an Indian origin background or are interested in India and you haven't heard of Shashi Tharoor, then you've been living under some sort of a rock somewhere. Um, but I'm uh, delighted to have him. It's going to be an open, relaxed conversation. I know you're super busy, uh, uh, Shashi. So welcome to Straight Talk with us. Thank you for giving me some time. Delighted to, to meet you again after the days when you were playing with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not trying to make you feel old. So uh, listen, I wanted to start with, there were three dimensions of this conversation. I wanted to first start with uh, this this. Uh, you know, juncture you're at. So you're a, a politician in India. But of course, that wasn't the case 12 or 13 years ago. You were in the UN, almost the right hand person for Kofi Annan. And then you left the UN. I think there's, I'd say. Anyway. I see. I see. <laughs> fair play, fair play. And you left left the UN and you came to India. I mean, you are from India, of course, that's your origin. And you just decided to join politics in India. Uh, tell us as to, and I've never figured this out. I mean, I, I'm sure we can do our research, but why? Why? You could have done a lot of things at that point. Why did you come back to India? Why did you join politics? And more importantly, what sustains you? Because I, you are a bit of an outlier. And by the way, this whole maverick community we have with Straight Talks is outliers, misfits, disruptors, blah, 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 whatever you wish to call it. So right. I see you as a bit of an outlier in Indian politics. Let's be honest, I'm you are. Too. Yes. I, yeah. I so like tell, tell us about that background. Well, look, Kaf, I mean, the thing is that, you know, when I lost the election, it was close but no cigar, as Groucho Marx would say, um, I decided to leave. And, and the Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, who had been just been elected, was very gracious and invited me to remain. But I felt that it would be inappropriate uh, to do so, having challenged him for the top post, anything I did or didn't do would inevitably end up being compared and raised and become an issue. So I thought the wiser thing to do was to step aside. And so I left in um, 2007. I was not quite 51, and it was an odd time to be looking for a new career. I was um, uh, sort of headhunted by a, a firm in, in based in Dubai that wanted to explore the possibilities of investment in India, and they wondered if I could do that for them. I was handsomely remunerated. I also was making speeches in those days at $50,000 a pop, so I was comfortable. Nice, I nice. could have continued doing that um, indefinitely, except for the fact that um, uh, it just didn't actually uh, move me enough. I mean, I'd, I'd never been somebody who was motivated by money or the bottom line. I, I From childhood, when I interrogated myself for the first time on the question of why on earth we exist on this planet only to be, you know, to be born and eventually to die, and the only answer I could find that made any sense was we exist to make a difference for having been here. And you make a difference how? By affecting the lives of others. And I'd been privileged to be able to do that at the UN for 29 years. And doing a job that essentially meant 
um, evaluating one's time and one's worth by the, the money rolling into the bank account just didn't you know tick any boxes for me. It didn't it didn't move me at all. Yeah, um, I was of course traveling to India frequently, once a month, in fact, and I was often using the opportunity to touch base with the um, political leaders in India whom I had known in my UN days. And, and as the senior Indian at the UN, I was automatically introduced to all of our prime ministers and foreign ministers over the years. Mm-hmm. And I, out of courtesy, kept in touch with them. And I developed a very warm rapport and dialogue with, with Sonia Gandhi. And, and to my great surprise, because I don't come from a political background, I was asked if I'd be interested in entering politics. And let me tell you, I've always been very, very uh, excited by the idea of democratic politics. It's still the the best way to bring about change in a democracy to actually help shape the future for your country. And uh, the opportunity to do that, I thought, would, would never exist because people of my sort of middle class professional background went into the civil yeah. services or the foreign yeah. The diplomatic service, they wouldn't go into politics. But here, perhaps because of the, the name recognition that I had achieved both through my books as well as my uh, later prominence at the UN and, and indeed my race for Secretary General, which was front page news in India for a while, mm-hmm. all of that made me a potential candidate. And I thought I'd be foolish to throw the opportunity away. And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was getting into, F, uh, because I had actually left India at 19 when the voting age was 21. So I'd never even voted in an election in my life, yeah. uh, let alone seen one from the inside. And here I was going to plunge myself into democratic politics without even having witnessed an election, let alone participated in one. Uh, but I f- was foolhardy enough to say yes. And I I must admit, it was the toughest three weeks of my life between <laughs> unexpected announcement of my candidacy yeah. and the actual voting, because you know India has these staggered voting dates because the size of our electorate is so vast. Mm. Uh, It takes place over seven phases, which are about six weeks uh, apart. And my Mm. uh, state, Kerala, happened to go to the polls in the first week. Thank God, because I would have died if I had to do six weeks of what I did for three. Uh, But in the end, um, my message worked. I got elected. And I'm pleased to say I've I've come back uh, for two more successive terms, for three terms, uh, in the lower house, uh, which is the toughest house to get into. Mm. I represent 2 million people, which is slightly more than the, anyone in the House of Commons. And I do um, I do have an opportunity every day to deal with all sorts of issues, whether of, of a broader development challenge for my constituency, some of the national issues that come up in Parliament for debate, as well as some of the uh, very specific individual problems which Indian MPs are still expected to attend to and resolve. Mm. Which I think in most Western democracies would be considered unethical for a re- elected representative to do are the sort of core uh, professional obligation for an Indian MP. Yeah. There's been a culture of expecting the MP uh, to do personal favors for constituents. And when you have a, a constituent pool of two million people, you are constantly swamped. So yeah. there's been a lot to do. Um, I've been doing it for 15 years. I have to say that it's it's had its challenges and frustrations, as well as its rewards and satisfactions. And looking back on it now, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't in, in any way uh, say it's been an unmixed uh, experience. There have been ups and downs, and in some mm. ways uh, more downs than ups, but I'm still standing. And I have to say that um, it's, it's shaped my life for the last 15 mm. years. Mm. What's I mean, what sustains you? Because, you know, if you think about your background, and of course, I've done a little bit of homework, apart from some history we had when I was much younger. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, how how do you motivate yourself to keep doing this? Because I, I I recall you saying for 29 years you don't have any controversy, and then you started this gig, and of course you've had some interesting times. Let's put it this way. And so, what keeps you going? I know you say you've got to have a thick skin, and politicians need to have a thick skin, and so on. Right. There's going to be something. What 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 is that? What is that mojo? How how do you just keep going and staying in the gig? Well, I think it's it's first of all, it's it's I'm not a quitter, never have been. If I've taken on something, I'm determined to see it through. So I, I I didn't let them drive me out of politics. And there were many, many occasions when they might have succeeded had I not uh if I had I failed to show a little more spine, I think there's yeah. there's a very good chance there were at least four uh episodes which would have driven someone else to just say throw in the towel and say the hell with this i don't need this anymore yeah and i can argue i never needed it at all because i was always someone um uh who who felt that politics was a means to achieving something larger in life but who could perhaps put his time to better use writing and so on if i'm mean, mm. not speaking or, or both but I, I stuck to it first because i'm not a quitter second because um uh, i didn't want to give uh those who are unfairly attacking me and demonizing me the satisfaction of victory. Uh, there's there's a line of my old boss, Kofi Annan's, which he says his mm. father taught him um, that I didn't understand when he first told me, which was, mm. uh, if the sharks bite you, do not bleed. I said, come on, Kofi, if the sharks bite you, I cannot bleed. He said, my boy, you're going to try and remember that uh, and you'll understand what it means when the time comes. Mm. And he was right, because when the sharks are biting you, you they want to see your blood in the water. And if you can deny them that joy, you've actually won a moral mm. victory over them. And that's been actually a very important sustaining factor. Mm. Don't let them win with their unfair attacks upon you. Um, uh, finally, of course, I've been sustained by a clear conscience and a sense uh, of conviction that, that I'm here to fight the good fight and it's worth fighting. Mm. Uh, so I've been able to take a lot of the rough with the smooth simply because, and there's been a lot more rough than smooth, but simply because I've had that faith in myself. Mm. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, Af. I mean, I know most Indian politicians have to be carried carried out <laughs> from the political arena. Yeah. I, I hope that I will have, you know, um, at some point, the good sense to say, not to throw in the towel in resignation or in despair, but simply to say, look, I've done my very best. It's time for someone else to have a go. I'm going to dandy my grandchildren on my knee and watch some cricket mm. and some books and and just enjoy life a bit for the declining years. And I think that's something which everyone is entitled to. And uh, uh, politicians have denied themselves that satisfaction. I don't intend to. Indeed, indeed. That's beautiful. And I know we've got, we're short of time, but I do need to make sure we switch gears now because this is this bit is very important to me personally too. So I, I've been working on this show for the last three years, and I, I do a lot of work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I do travel to India often. I take you know hordes of people who are international folks from the UK, from Europe, and other parts of the world to India. India is a melting pot of everything, you know, uh, dichotomies, uh, contradictions, oxymorons, you name it. It's the most fascinating place ever. And this book that you've just released, well, not just, but a few months back on Dr. Baker, and I haven't read the book, but I read some summaries. I mean, it's pretty horrific because, sorry, please go ahead. You were saying. There's Indian editions right behind me within yes. your frame. I don't know if they, the entire frame comes through, but it's right behind me. I the see UK it. The edition looks a bit different. Uh, so, okay. uh, but, but it's there, and I'm very pleased that it will find an audience in the UK as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for sure. And now we've, you know, I, I I need to put it on my reading list, of course. Now, 
a few bits on this book, and I'm, it's an abstract linkage to DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion. This chap, of course, you talk about the horrific incidents of prejudice and discrimination of the Dalit community and this particular individual who was, you know, surpassing um, the norm. He was he was an outlier. He was a maverick. He was a disruptor in his own regard and in his in his time. Um, one of the questions I always get is related to how diversity, uh, inclusion, equity is practiced in the West versus the East, or let's say India at this point. And of course, you have this holistic perspective because you've written so many books uh, in, in this area. Tell us um, what you would say to our community. We have about 30,000 academics and executives and entrepreneurs and so on, who many are of Indian background, but you know most are from international backgrounds. What is the primary difference between DEI in the West and in India and why, according to you? Well, I think, uh, and I, I, I should preface this by saying I'm really not competent to comment on, on how things are in the West because I haven't lived there for the last 15 years. But, sure. but if, I were to, if I were to generalize from my prior experience, it would be that you folks are much more open, direct, uh, and in your face about it, you talk about it, you confront all the issues, whereas India's traditional way of of resolving some of these some of these issues has been to just let things be quietly under the carpet. So, for example, mm. um, I remember when I was a kid, for example, and homosexuality was illegal in Britain. We had uh, British homosexuals coming to India as school teachers, as um, as as um, uh, theatre people, like the famous Barry John, uh, Marcus Munch. There were a few others like this who yeah. made quite a reputation for themselves as very creative people. It was widely known to everyone in Indian society that they were gay. Uh, but even though homosexuality was illegal in India too, everyone just sort of brushed it under the carpet, never talked about it. No one ever went after them. Whereas if you were openly uh, practicing homosexual in England in those days, you could be arrested. Right. I'm talking about the 60s and, and very early 70s. And so you're talking about a, a, a situation where um, England does things by the rule book. Uh, and uh, so to, to get into a stage of, of inclusion, you've got to change the rules. Mm. In India, everyone ignores the rule book. And so you prefer to brush the issue under the carpet rather than confront the need to change it. Mm. So, for example, we have still got in our books, I mean, we still had till a few years ago, uh, a section of the Indian Penal Code criminalizing uh, homosexuality, which dates back to the British era. Yeah. And the British called it, uh, you know, unnatural acts between people of the same gender and so on. And, and they, you know, acts against the order of nature was what the British called it. Um, now, when I tried to get that um, uh, amended in Parliament, I was consistently voted down by the BJP majority, which is sort of the cultural mm -hmm. right in India. And I said to the activists who'd come to me seeking my help, that they were better off going ahead and, and uh, uh, trying the judicial route. Because if the courts decided to, uh, to read down this act, uh, the, the, the politicians who didn't have the, uh, the courage or, the, or whatever else you can call it to vote for diversity and inclusion and legalization uh, would be quiet. Uh, they wouldn't mm. try to challenge the court. And mm. my advice was right. They went to the courts. They got it decriminalized in the, in the judiciary, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and and there wasn't a, a whimper from the very people who stood up shouting against me when I tried to do that through the legislative route. Mm. And it taught me the lesson. There are some things about, <clears throat> about India which um, don't come easily in the West. You know, we have laws, but we don't enforce them. 
we 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 are permissive in many ways of of of, of unusual behaviors in society, um, yeah. provided we don't talk about them. Mm. So we had everything. We had transgenders, the Hijra community, the eunuchs. We had uh, we had um, uh, women living with women, men living with men, all sorts of things, and no one pretended it, to notice it or do anything. But the moment there was a demand to recognize it formally, to decriminalize it, to put it on the statute books, or to um, to to um, to change the rules, as it were, yeah, yeah. pushback, and and that was the peculiar thing about India, which is so different from the West. Now, finally, through the judicial route, the rules are being changed, and even as we speak, there's a case pending before the Supreme Court that um, uh, is is an argument for same-sex marriage, mm. um, or rather, gender-neutral marriage, and and it's 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 fascinating that. The Supreme Court has heard this and is 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 um, judging by the comments made by the judges during the hearings appears very sympathetic mm. to those who are advocating this change. Mm. So we are seeing the judiciary as a means of pushing open changes that never in in the in the foreseeable future uh, would a political majority have been able to vote. Mm-hmm. There's one more angle I wanted to throw at you, which is um, often we talk about collectivism versus individualism. So the East being more about family, about the family structure and focused on the community as opposed to the West, which is uh, more so about the person. And there is a, a definite sort of flavor there. And so there are pros and cons to both. Um, but when I think about your book, Inglorious Empire and various other you know uh, essays that you've written and so on and so forth, um, there's something something about legacy and uh, almost a sense of guilt, perhaps, you know, because if you think about DEI today in the West, oh, my God, it's like budgets are jumping from like 10 billion to 30 billion by 2030, you know, huge growth. Everyone's talking about every CEO. It's their number one priority. Every board is focused on changing the game and addressing unconscious bias and so on. We don't see that level of activity in Indian companies, the Sensex listed companies. Is is it because it's sort of understood or is it because it's way behind the curve and there's a lot of work to be done, including inclu- including the public sector, of course? Well, look, I mean, I'll be very honest with you and say that uh, when we talk about inclusion in the West, we talk about all kinds of inclusion. I, my answer confined itself specifically uh, to the LGBTQ issue. But if you look right. at caste, for example, yeah. that's where the same attitude works against uh, India, because what happens is that uh, India has outlawed untouchability, for example. Hmm. But there are surveys that demonstrate that a good quarter of the population still practice untouchability. There have been episodes uh, even as recently as this year of people from the former untouchable community, the Dalit community, yeah. being assaulted, being raped, being mistreated, being lynched for no other reason than their caste, or they're presuming to do something that their caste was, quote-unquote, not supposed to do, such as uh, having a love affair with somebody of a, of a quote-unquote, higher caste, mm. that sort of stuff. So if, if, you, if you look at all that, the fact that the rule book says one thing and society allows something else uh, may have been in the interests of, 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 of some... Um, uh, shall we say, who were, whose behavior didn't conform to society's publicized norms, mm. but it's worked against the interests of those who who have been fighting for their own place of honor in this society. Mm. And, and the Dalits um, are, the, are the prime example of it. Uh, to some degree, but in a very different way, the Aboriginals, the Adivasi people have also had their challenges. But the Dalits are the biggest victims because uh, though there is affirmative action, uh, enshrined in the constitution by Dr. Ambedkar, who uh, was the foremost um, constitutionalist of Dalit provenance in our history. Um, 
and, and he wrote in the world's oldest and, and farthest reaching affirmative action program, which guarantees not just equality of opportunity, but of outcomes. Yeah. So there are seats reserved for Dalits in parliament. There are seats reserved in, in government offices and in educational institutions and in medical colleges, all of that stuff. But the truth is that beyond those reservations, how people behave in society mm. is much slower to change. Now, Urban areas, change comes faster because you can't discriminate against people when A, they're your boss at the office, or B, when you don't know whose shoulders you're rubbing against in the bus. Mm. But in rural areas where everyone knows who everyone is and who his grandfather was and what profession he practices, uh, there are still parts of India, particularly, I would say, northern India, where discrimination and, and millennial-old practices uh, are still, still uh, continuing. And uh, we know we can shout diversity and inclusion to be blue in the face of the elite levels in the cities, but how easily do we, are we going to change that behavior uh, in the villages? How easy are we going to get the law enforcement authorities to take the side of the law and not of the society in which they've arisen? So you've got um, people, uh, policemen in, in sort of parts of rural Madhya Pradesh, not registering FIRs uh, where Dalits are assault, uh, alleging assault and so mm. on. Uh, you, you've got all sorts of problems. Uh, it's an ongoing battle left. We, we, mm. haven't, we, we are by no means um, uh, in any way uh, a perfect society. Mm. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, there are various kinds of exclusion that our society has practiced over the years. And it's time we overcame all of them uh, with a greater or lesser degree of formalism, whatever is possible. Yeah, yeah. So um, just a final little uh, anecdote for you in the UK. I'm not saying this is the case today, but when I moved to the UK in 1988, I have a similar story to your um, father's story where my father wanted us to be educated here, but actually wanted to go back to India because he was a lawyer in the Supreme Court. Um, when I came here from Delhi, and that's where we lived, I walked uh, into Wembley, which is the area I used to live in. And people said, what, you know, Indians of uh, Gujarati background and so on, they said, what Gaum are you from? What Gaum are you from? What village are you from? I said, I'm from Delhi. They're like, Delhi? That's not a village. And then I realized the caste is, uh, the caste, um, casteism in society when one person from a certain Gaum, another person from a certain Gaum, they used to practice that and they were born and bred in the UK you know, uh, of, of Indians born and bred in the UK. And it's not it's not changed to the degree that you feel that it should have changed to. Um, and it's there's again, contradictions here with the Indian community. My final point, uh, and because I do know you have to run off, but this is a very important point. Look, you you are without question, like uh, the Modi government says that they are, they've done a fantastic job of PR and there is a new India and a new generation of Indians and, you know, many, many fantastic things like the startup economy and unicorns and so on and so forth. That's an area that I play in. Uh, you are also a role model, Shashi, you know, um, because you've given the Indian politician a very different look and feel. Uh, admittedly, you wear Indian clothes and you wear your, you know, narrow, narrow jacket and your kurtas and so on and so forth. But I have to say, I mean, certainly for me and for many Indians, even if they weren't from India, they've started to feel, you know, a sense of pride as to, well, there are politicians who, you know, not only English, it's not just your ability to speak English, but you carry yourself well, you know, uh, and you're ambidextrous in, in many ways. And so now with that mantle and that pressure, I ask you, uh, of course, Inglorious Empire was a super success. You were in all the newspapers, front page of this and front page of that, and on the BBC, and I'm aware of that. Uh, three thinking hats very quickly. So uh, Mr. Sunak has come into power. For an Indian like me from the diaspora, it is historic 
it is historic, no question. And for Indians all over the world, you know, right? Um, when you wrote the book in 2016, of course, you, it was damning and, you know, it created whatever it did, a sentiment, uh, sometimes not so not so positive. Um, first thinking hat, a, a, pessimist, a pessimistic hat in terms of Sulek's in power, you know, what, what could happen, a pessimistic view. A second one, a realist. And a third one, an optimist, because I'd love to finish on the optimist. It, can I request you to, to to do a bit of acting here? Just give me the pessimist, realist, optimist, please. Well, the pessimistic view would be sort of looking across the pond at, at, at Obama's presidency and what did it change for Black Americans? Um, that was it not really an aberration rather right. than So Sunak as prime minister, uh, everything goes back to being the same once he leaves office and it may be ages before another one gets a crack at it. That's the pessimistic view. The realistic view is that it's more about Sunak than about Indians. Uh, the Conservative Party was in a mess. They needed somebody who could bail out the economy and who understood economics mm. uh, and had the ability, particularly the sort of, uh, shall we say, what the Germans call the Fingerspitzengefühl, the feeling of the pulse for how to get the corporates uh, moving and, and, and get the, the economy growing again. And Sunak was the most competent person in that particular field. Mm. And so not so much a question that he was Indian, they wouldn't mind an Indian. It was that mm. he was uh, the most competent person to run the economy, and they were prepared to overlook the fact that he was an Indian. That would Correct. be the realistic analysis. And the optimistic analysis is that by being prime minister, Rishi Sunak has expanded the boundaries of the possible for all Indians in the UK. He's shown um, the, the, the mainstream sort of white uh, Anglo-Catholic I beg your pardon, Anglo-Protestant uh, types, yes. that you can be a brown Hindu uh, and still lead this country in the same way that a white man would have done, right down to reading from the Bible at the coronation, uh, that, that he can, uh, he can uh, uh, make friends with European leaders, and sometimes more effectively than some of his white predecessors have done. I won't name names, but I think mm. you know what I'm talking about. And that he can cultivate the relationships that matter to Britain and the world while pushing the economy forward and at the same time having a special appeal to the countries of the global south so that people may suddenly wake up and say, hey, this was a darn good thing. We should encourage more people of this sort of background to rise to the top in all mm. parties. Mm. Uh, and I, I must say that that's, that's not just optimistic. It's, it's, it's a hopeful prospect for the future, F. Yeah, beautiful. Nicely summarized. So uh, I listen, I would love to talk to you for hours, but I know you've got a super busy schedule and you've got to do 10 things. Well, I'd love to do another one with you later. I'm coming to the UK from the 8th to the 15th, uh, principally in order to launch the uh, Manchester University Press edition of Ambedkar. I'll be giving talks in various places, including in both the Lords and the Commons. Um, but I'm also going to be at the Jeff Literary Festival at the British Library. So yeah. anybody who wants to hear me can do so. And at the end of it all, I really hope that... Um, that um, uh, the, the, the sort of wonderful connection. I was born in London and I yes, never really lived there since the age of two and a half, but I keep coming back um, uh, roughly once a year. I have a sister and nephews who live there, so that's a good motive. Uh, I hope that this connection continues and we can continue talking to each other over the years. Absolutely. I would love that. And I would love to get you back on the show. And I'll see you in London. Thank you so much. Final question. It's only been 30 minutes. We've just got to know each other. But how has the last 30 minutes been for you? You probably had a meeting before. You have a meeting later. Uh, but just a couple of words to give us the uh, the impetus to keep doing this. 
Well, first of all, if you're somebody who does his homework, which I like, uh, so you, you knew what you were talking about. You asked me questions that were relevant and that, that related to things that I had actually said or done or expressed, which is not always the case. So congratulations to you. Uh, you. Second, you, you asked me questions which um, I'm very happy to address, um, particularly for an audience of people um, who look like me, as it were. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't mean to be in any way racist about this. I'm com comfortable explaining myself to any audience that wants an explanation. But there's a certain affinity here, which uh, I'm happy to indulge in. So uh, I guess I responded to in that spirit. But keep up the great work, and I hope we'll have an opportunity to uh, resume this conversation on a future occasion. Absolutely, Shashi. Listen, take care of yourself. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Be well. Keep smiling. Keep writing. Keep inspiring. Be well. Thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank take you. care. Cheers. Bye.